Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. We're continuing in our sermon series in Mark, and we've come to Mark 3. We've got two passages here, Mark 3, 13 through 21 and 31 through 35. And he went up on the mountain called to, to him, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came. Standing outside, they sent and called to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was reading a kind of half personal memoir and half uh, academic consideration of this neighborhood that this guy grew up in, South Boston. And he's telling this story to try and explain the, the character of the forces at work in this neighborhood, the other name for it is Southie. And he relates um, a story, and I think it actually happened, but it's kind of one of those, like, uh, you know, his grandmother related it to him or something like that. But there's a woman that is a member of what we call the Boston Brahmin class. You know, they're, they're the people whose ancestors came over on the, uh, the Arbella, is actually the, the ship that the people that uh, first colonized Boston came on. Um, you know, so old school, old family Yankee. And they have this very strong sense of sort of community virtue. Uh, the, the importance of, of giving oneself for the good of the community. And she's out going door to door in Southie trying to raise votes for her brother who is running for a political office. And she knocks on the door of a first-generation Irish immigrant. And this woman is kind of like, oh, well, of course you're candidating for your brother. He's, he's your brother. He's, he's going to help your family out. And the Boston Brahmin lady says, well, my brother would never use his position to promote family. Well, the, the Irish immigrant responds, well, how on earth could I trust a man who won't even take care of his own family? 
And there's this interesting like juxtaposition there where we see two good but also misguided worldviews colliding. Uh, the, the importance of family, uh, but also the, the importance of the, the broader community, of, of caring for these higher ideals, if you will. And it, it connects with something. Because we, as just human beings, uh, have this tendency to make family ultimate. To say that family is sort of our, our highest goal, our highest good. Now, as a, a very transient society, we have begun to shift that and replace that with other things. Uh, it might be our, our, we don't think in terms of class in the West, but maybe social set would be something we'd say. Uh, political party or occupation. Uh, you know, oh, those are real estate people. They're good people. Might be a way that I might think of things. Um, we, we can see the ugliness of ethnicity or race being a basis for, like, this identity is ultimate. But we can connect with these ideas where, as humans, we want to find the group, and often it is family, that we make primary. And a passage like this is saying that the church is to be the radical, primary, chosen family of God. That that connection actually comes before all of these other connections. Now, there's sort of two vignettes here that we're looking at. Uh, In the first, verses 13 through 19, we're going to look at Christ brings leaders into the family. And I'm using the, uh, the Mafia Don uh, word there intentionally, but I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and then the second, verses uh, 20 and 21, but also 31 through 35, is Christ shows the importance of this family. So let's pray together, and then we'll work through the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray for your direction, your spirit. Uh, you're making us able to see what you have placed here. Prevent me from misleading, prevent us from avoiding, but give us your truth. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So first of all, verses 13 through 19, Christ bring leaders into the family. Now the, the mafia connection may be the wrong connection, but it's that he's creating an, an organization here, and there is sort of a military or violence maybe undertone that we could see here. Um says, he went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, it's typical in any society when you're raising up an opposition to those who are in authority, you go up into the mountains. You go out into the wilderness. You go into the places that are, are farther from where law can see and speak to you. And this isn't new stuff in Israel. Um, one of the, the people that he's going to call to himself is also known as the zealot. Now, when we say zealot, we're talking about a person that has an, you know, an almost irrational level of dedication to something. Well, we get that from this group, the zealots, who were committed to independent Israelite nationhood apart from Rome. And they were radically and, you know, amazingly dedicated to this cause such that it is, you know, run down through history that we still look back to them as people that were committed to their cause, their their political overthrow. And so there are other groups that are going up into the mountains and that are training and are preparing for the work that they are doing to oppose Rome as their ultimate uh, sovereign. But Jesus is calling for a different sort of work. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him 
and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So there's these two tasks, as opposed to where the zealots are going up in the mountains to practice military tactics, uh, to figure out how is it you wage a guerrilla war against the Romans, Jesus is bringing his followers up into the mountains to practice tactics. But the tactics are that they might be with him. They might witness what he's doing. They might serve as the voice speaking down through the ages to what it was that Christ did. And second to that, or the the other part of that task, that they might preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, this is the stuff we've seen Jesus doing thus far. So this group is being ready to, one, see what Jesus does, and two, do what Jesus does. To function on behalf of Christ as they go out to preach and to cast out demons and to declare His entrance into the world, not as a new political sovereign, but as a sovereign. And there's another thing in the text that points to this. Uh, he's, he's gathered not just the apostles, but a group. There's been a, a group following him. And while the crowds are often sort of a, a negative uh, picture in Mark, uh, it's the case that as Jesus is traveling around, there are people that are, you know, coming out to hear him when he's near them, and there's people that are kind of following him where he's going, whether it's just to see his miracles or because they're beginning to be convinced of what he's saying. But this, this group that follows him, he brings up into the mountains, and out of them he appoints 12. And in Israel, the number 12 is significant because there's 12 tribes of Israel. It's the political organization of Israel. It's also the ethnic orientation of Israel. But by Jesus taking 12 disciples, that, that number isn't just um, something, you know, around dozen. Uh, he's rather citing this connection to Israel's structure. And as he's connecting to that structure, he's saying, I am inheriting that structure, and I'm doing something new and different with it. And that's not going to be lost on his audience that are used to being the 12 tribes, that are used to their Benjamite or Danite or whatever image that is. There's a restoration happening here. Remember, 10 of the 12 tribes have been swept away in the Assyrian domination 700 years ago. Only two remaining tribes were were around. And so in addition to sort of political, this is the new Israel, and I I am calling together this new special Israel, there's also restoration. I am restoring Israel. I am bringing Israel back to what it should have been, to what it was intended to be. And we get the names of, of the apostles. But notice how that passage runs straight into this, and then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And here again, we get this sort of negative impression of the crowd. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. He's making this overtly political statement as his family is understanding it. You're going up in the mountains to train followers. You're organizing your followers under 12 leaders that are representing the 12 tribes. We don't want trouble with Rome. We don't want trouble with the governing authorities. You're crazy. Stop. And his family is working to restore the status quo. And so we get this this contrast between verse 13, where he went up to the mountains and called to him those whom he desired, and his family, those that he is connected to, saying he's out of his mind, trying to resist this movement he's starting. We want to engage more in that second part where Jesus is showing the importance of this family. 
2021, the family wants him to stop making waves. 31, you know how we, we do inductive study where we'll underline what are the, the words that occur most in the passage? Well, even in reading through this passage, you hear mother and brothers over and over and over and over. His mother and brothers came and they called and told him to come out to them. And the crowd is telling him, your mother and brothers are outside. And he asks, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at him, and these are the, the apostles, the people that he desired, those whom he called to himself, he says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, and note here, and sister. He throws in this extra acknowledgement that as he's, as he's dealing with females in the kingdom, these are his sisters and mother. This is my family, he's saying. Now, in Israelite society, loyalty to family was the local and specific outworking of your loyalty to the people of Israel or the people of God. It was both symbolically your, your primary connection point to being an Israelite, being a person in relationship to God. But it was also this deeply social connection. Uh, families lived together in multi-generational structures, often in compounds where they would be doing farming or carrying out trades, and everyone was involved in that work together. And there's this very tight and close identity. And in the midst of that tight, close identity, Jesus is saying, in the, in the very presence of his actual bio, well, not, uh, sorry, biological mother and half-brothers, he says, these people that are involved in my mission are my brothers and sisters and mother. There's a big contrast in the passage between his biological family and his chosen family, those whom he desired. Uh, notice the mother and brothers came to him and standing outside, they sent and called to him. And Jesus is leaving his family outside. Now, at the cross, he takes steps in the process of being executed to find someone to care for his mother, to deal with the reality that he lives in first century Palestine, and in first century Palestine, an unattached woman is going to have a really hard time in surviving, and he takes care of her. But here, he is not being a good Jewish boy. He is leaving his family outside and saying, these people around me are my more immediate connection. There's an invitation going on there. When he's breaking this tradition, he's not doing what we would expect to see the good Jewish boy doing. He's challenging good Jewish values. He's challenging their value system. He's actually challenging our value system. And as he sets up this contrast, those outside and those who are with him, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother, he's calling on us and asking, which part are you in? Which group are you in? Which group holds your allegiance? And when questions of the gospel or allegiance to Christ come up, it produces division. But at the same time, it also produces a new family, a new identity. Now, the church is just as bad at the world at confusing this family idea. I remember when we lived in Illinois, the local Christian radio station was WBGL, Faith, Hope, Family. And that tagline, you know, every time you, you came back from an ad series or whatever, and what we often meant by family was sort of like the way we use the word family values. 
and the church is a place for families, and we like families. And there's a, a failure to get, no, the church is family. Family values aren't about things being G-rated. I mean, have you read the Bible? Not a G-rated document. But rather that the church is a family. Not about families, but Jesus' family. There's a, an author I like, Megan McArdle, <clears throat> who I think she got a degree in journalism or something, was having trouble finding a job in the early 2000s, and her dad ends up the project manager for the cleanup at Ground Zero. And so he hires her as his kind of like on-site secretary to be, you know, dealing with payroll and bringing in equipment and, you know, overseeing things from a, um, an administrative standpoint. And she starts getting to know his workmen. And she's from a more kind of... Uh, academic, white-collar set of society, and so she's working very closely with this more blue-collar group of guys and is realizing that she's witnessing the sort of um, culture clash that I described at, in the opening about Southie and Boston. She, there was this one particular conversation she was part of where this guy has just gotten back from a vacation in Florida, and he says he got into a really big bar fight. And, you know, the, the police ended up getting involved. He's concerned that there might be charges, but he says the worst part is, like, I feel bad about it, because my friend started the fight, and he was wrong. And she's like, I'm missing something here then. Like, if your friend started the fight and you know he's wrong, why did you jump in? And she said, like, everyone in the trailer, because it's, a, it's a, a mobile trailer that they use at the office, everyone in the trailer looks at her like she's got two heads. And you're like, because he's my friend. Like, it doesn't matter if he's right or wrong, he's my friend. Well, that's the, the sort of connection that on some level we innately understand as humans, but that we forge in the wrong direction constantly. You know, my, my family right or wrong, my neighborhood right or wrong. Uh, whatever that, as I talked about before, whatever that chosen identity group that we're going to say, well, they have my primary connection, that's actually a corruption of the connection that Jesus is calling his church to have with the people that, as he says here, he called those whom he desired those who Jesus desired for the mission that he was carrying out. That's the sort of connection we're to have with each other. Our primary commitment is to Christ and his family. Now, the Bible at times acknowledges places where it makes the family first line of defense. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.8, when it's dealing with care for the poor, it's saying, for those of you in the church that have poor relatives that you're failing to care for, you're being worse than the pagans. You're not doing your job. There are sort of natural places where the family is to function as a first line of defense. And in a culture that is too transient, uh, that doesn't value localism and roots, we want to lean back against some of those other idols. Uh, there's a great book, um, Dignity where a, a guy that was a, a broker in Wall Street during the Great Recession sort of deals with some of his guilt, if you will, for his role in that by taking long walks into the neighborhoods that he was told by friends not to go to in New York. And he starts connecting with a population that he begins using the terminology front row people and back row people to describe. Because he realizes in the Great Recession that he's a part of what we might call the front row people. They're transient people. They're educated people. They're people that are very easily able to kind of pick up and move when the going gets tough in one location and, and the, uh, 
you know, that, that things are easier in another location. But as he explores the world of back row people more and more, he starts realizing he has kind of divided the world into sort of urban and rural. And his people were the urban people. And the rural people were the, you know, as we're talking about these, where, where's your alliance? Where's your allegiance? Where's your connection? But he starts realizing the back row people are not divided by this urban-rural divide. Uh, there are these neighborhoods in New York that he was told to avoid where he finds back row people, uh, prostitutes, drug addicts, people who have been trapped in generational cycles of poverty. And then he begins, as he's writing this book, uh, traveling in order to, to connect more and understand better, and he finds a lot of these same people with the same culture, the same concerns in a lot of rural places. And so when we're talking about breaking down identities and, and connections to, to family, to roots, etc., the Bible doesn't have a problem with localism. The Bible doesn't have a problem with using the natural connections that we have to our families for the mission of God, uh, to our neighborhoods for getting to know and loving people well and involving them in the mission of God. But whereas we very quickly start using those local or blood identities as the thing that is, you know, that's the people I stand by right or wrong, a passage like this is saying, no, 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 no. You've been given those connections for the mission of God. As this primary and first family that you are part of is being used by God as the means of His presence in the world for redemption. There is a call here to serving each other in the church, to spending time with each other in the church, not to the exclusion of outsiders, but in order to create a context where you can draw outsiders in. Uh, there's a need to be sensitive to looking for the, the vulnerable people in our midst, singles, uh, people that are experiencing trauma, and finding ways of loving and serving and caring for those people as the family of God. And this is, I don't know, narcissism or whatever, but I think you guys do an amazing job of that. I think you love each other well and care for each other well and take this family connection we are called to well. But we don't want to rest on our laurels. We don't want to say, oh, yeah, we're a church that does that well, and then in the process of saying, well, we're a church that does that well, miss out on the fact that we have to be intentional, that we have to say, if this is part of our DNA, not only is it just there, we also got to keep reminding ourselves that it's there that this is what Jesus calls us to, that this is the connection that Jesus calls us to have. There's a, um, there's a scene in the movie The Town. Which you get, this is a very Boston-oriented bunch of, of illustrations, but uh, it's referring to Charlestown in Boston, which strangely has the largest apparently per capita number of uh, armed car heist folks of anywhere in the world. And so the town is a story about this neighborhood gang that takes on armored cars. Uh, but they've got that sort of family connection that, you know, whatever you do, I've got your back. And so there's this one just great scene. Uh, ben Affleck, who is the, the leader of this gang, walks up to sort of his, you know, second-in-command guy. And they're, they're in a, 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 an apartment somewhere. He says, I need your help. I can't tell you what it is. You can never ask me about it later. We're going to hurt some people. The other guy says, whose car are we going to take? And I've, I've posted this on Facebook before. You know, just like I get that, like, oh, yeah, people that have your back. 
And the funny thing is, when I've posted that link before, I've had numerous people be like, that's the sort of connection with my friends that I want. You know, that's, that's how I want to understand each other. And there's something that we connect with with that because we want to have each other's back and know that others have our back that way. It's misplaced priorities, but it's pointing to something that's actually kind of beautiful. I don't mean hurting people is a beautiful thing, but having people that are going to be there for you regardless of no matter what is a beautiful thing. That's the part that we connect with and long for. And that is what Jesus is calling his people to in this. Not don't ask questions before you go hurt someone, but rather there's that level of having each other's back, of primary identity in Jesus, in his mission, and in his people. Now, how do we do that? Okay, it's a beautiful thing. It's something I want to be part of. How, when I'm dealing with the, the pressures of other things, the, the expectations of family, the expectations of broader community, how do I still do this? Well, we passed over in this passage a segment that we looked at last week, verses 22 through 28, uh, 22 through 30. And in that, we see where the, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of um, being able to cast out demons because he's in league with Satan. And you may remember from last week, Jesus in uh, verses 25, 26, and 27 makes the point of a house is divided against itself, the house is not able to stand. If Satan is rising up against himself as divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. But what Jesus is saying there is kind of like Ben Affleck, we're going to hurt some people, Satan's the people. We can't do this thing we're called to unless the strong man has been bound. And Jesus is saying, I've done it. I've bound Satan. And so as I form this new community, this new family, these people that have each other's back no matter what, as they carry out the mission of God, and again, this is not to be an, an insular, inward-facing, well, we're better than everyone else around us because we have each other's back. No, the church is for the mission that Jesus has brought us here for by his power because he has bound Satan, because he has said, I am the strong man, and the things that I call you to, I am providing the power to actually do. Christian commitment is primarily a commitment to the family of Jesus and his mission as the vehicle that is spreading the news that he is inviting and redeeming creation into that family. Let's pray together. Jesus, who is our strong man, the one who has defeated Satan, the one who is gathering us around you into your warband, into your family, not so that we can go out and be the bigger gang, not so we can go out and create political parties that will enforce our will, but rather so we can be the redemptive presence of your body in the midst of the world, bringing the news of your redemption. Empower us. Strengthen us. Bond us together as your family that we might be your family on your mission. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.